You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Sorry, please, thank you. You're reading this, so it's too late. For me, I mean, I'm gone. That's redundant, isn't it? What the hell am I doing? It's only so much space on this napkin, and I'm using it up on rhetorical questions. What a metaphor for life, a finite space, impossibly small. No way to fit a whole lifetime in there. But we sure do try. Oh God, I'm annoying. I even annoy myself. I'm out of control with this kind of stuff, I know. This is why you never really loved me. Got one bullet in the chamber, barrel jammed in waistband, metal cold against my skin. One bullet, one napkin, napkin that my last drink was sitting on. I'm running out of space, so I'll start to get to the point. You said I'd get over it. I should have made you a bet, because hey, guess what? I've got a loaded gun in my underwear, so it turns out I was right. Not that I can complain. Had some good years. My life, in a nutshell. Zero to eight years. Happy no reason. 9 to 19, happy, wrong reasons. 20 to 33, unhappy for all the right reasons. 34 to present moment, unhappy, looking for a reason. Sorry, man, I get that a lot. I'm sorry for your loss, people say to one another. What does that mean? I wish it weren't so. I can imagine a world in which it had not happened. But that's not what sorry means. Sorry means that happened to you. That happened to you and it may or may not have been inevitable, but it happened and there are some things that happen that we can only look at and say, sorry, circular, sorry for your loss means I am sorry, that there is loss, or to put it another way, there is loss. Charles Yu is the author of the short story collection Third Class Superhero. His first novel was How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. His new short story collection is Sorry, Please, Thank You. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Thank you very much for having me again, Rick. Charles, this is such an interesting story collection. It's funny. It's hilarious. It made me laugh out loud many times. It's really touching and full of emotional power. But also what I thought was so interesting about it, this attacks, this whole collection to me seemed an, uh, an attempt to understand identity using language in the same way you might use math to understand the solar system. (laughs) And I thought that was so interesting. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about the way you use language and just to examine identity? I think that seems to be a theme through all of these stories. Mm. Well, first of all, yeah, I appreciate that take on it. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think when you say it that way, it it really goes back to me being a failed scientist. <laughs> um, I was a science major in college. I, I didn't get into medical school. and But I think in this book especially, you're right. I mean, there were a bunch of experiments in a way in which I thought, well, I don't know how to do science, but I do I do know how to write, or, or I think I do, and, and, and at least I, I know how to write the way I know how to write. And so it was a bunch of different approaches at looking at identity and I think certain fundamental things, for instance, the title story itself. That passage I was reading goes on to try to 
try to sort of have a rigorous definition of what sorry is, of what an apology really is, and it and uses some of the language of science. You know, it starts to talk about a vector and a force-carrying particle. It's sort of, obviously, I know this is not science, but... <laughs> no, it really is. I mean, this is, I, I, I beg to differ. I think that this is very much, um, you're using fiction to engage in self-observation at a level that's very rigorous. I think rigorous is a good way to describe some of these stories. Uh, yeah, I think... What one thing I'm interested in is, and this is why I titled this collection, you know, why I picked that story as a title story, and and also in you know the epigraphs, there's reference to Worf and Sapir, who who you know have this hypothesis about language being sort of how we our native language is defining how we see the world, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I was interested in that. I was interested in how we how language does divide the world into categories and to, you know, how it slices up the world for us. So, yeah, that was definitely something that I was obsessed with while writing this. Why don't you read that epigraph? Because I thought sure. that was uh, that was very informative as well. There's a couple of them. Um, yeah, read the whole, read all read them, of them. Okay. <laughs> Human beings do not live in the objective world alone, but are very much at the mercy of the particular language, which has become the medium of expression for their society. The fact of the matter is that the real world is, to a large extent, unconsciously built upon the language habits of the group. No two languages are ever sufficiently similar to be considered as representing the same social reality. And that was Edward Sapir. And Benjamin Lee Worf said, We dissect nature along lines laid down by our native languages. And then there's a third epigraph that just says, Sorry, and that's by Anonymous. <laughs> you know, I, they... One of the things I like about these stories is they really, I think, get down to the the most essential aspect of story, which is that humans are a narrative species. That's how we define ourselves as a story. If I ask you, who are you, Charles Hugh, and you respond to that question, I think, throughout in many stories in this book uh, directly, whether there are whether they describe the real you or a you designed to evoke different emotions in us is somewhat irrelevant uh, you, you still tell us stories and that mm-hmm. and I think that's how we define ourselves is with a story definitely I mean I was I was late a little late coming to the studio and I work very close to here and I, I'm when we were setting up the time and the place I thought this is perfect it's literally I work just off Jefferson you know the studio is just off Jefferson I thought I'll just shoot across I've driven this route however many times of course I get lost it's a three-mile drive where there's one road and I I managed to get lost it occurred to me that it was because it was so basic I made some kind of huge error in assuming that I knew how to get here because the road of course breaks up it's not one straight road but it was the most basic possible route if it had been more complicated I probably would have looked at it planned out my route and and you know printed it maybe even but instead I said oh I'm just going to head east and so um, I think as a kind of roundabout way of going, getting to what you just said, it, it's the the very basic nature of what I was trying to do w- that led me to make an error. And I think that kind of is, in an, there's an a- analogy there to the question of who is, you know, who are you? Who am I? It's it's the question that we don't think about very often. That's, to me, the the most interesting and where we 
are most likely to find some interesting things if we start to try to investigate it. And and then to your point, of course, then in my head I was thinking, oh, this is this is kind of like a life lesson for me. <laughs> as I'm driving, I'm like, <laughs> and, and I'm making a story out, out of it, even as I'm rushing, I'm making a story going, okay, so that, this is, and, and that felt good in a way. That felt good to make a story out of being late when really I just should have, should have google mapped it instead <laughs> well i i've driven i used to work in playa del rey too and oh, this really? is a really complicated street i've driven here a bazillion times and getting back and forth to, and i think i know close to i i'm headed close to where you work after this and oh, so yeah. i think i it, it's complicated it isn't easy <laughs> oh, thanks. well i the first uh book in our story in this book standard loneliness package is a really wonderful story and I think this is a good example for anybody who picks this up of where what you're about in this book and gives you an, an idea of the range uh, because it's hilarious. We read this and, I, and you laugh out loud many times. But it's also, at the same time, incredibly touching and emotional and powerful. And that's an interesting terrain to work at the same time, all without your... Well, within the story your style, your linguistic style remains constant. So I'd like you to talk about going back and forth between those kind of extremes of different emotions while maintaining the same linguistic style. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm glad it worked. I think, you know, there's always the risk of of putting two sort of disparate or, or trying to do two disparate things and having them separate and not you know, mm-hmm. stick to each other, and so it's um, it's. I, I guess it. You know, it's nice to hear that it worked on some level, and that that is definitely something that, you know, I think that's what to me drives drove the writing of that story was looking for this character's voice and you know somebody who has this terrible job, you know, which is literally to feel other people's pain, and yet having him be a very somebody with a high degree of empathy instead of somebody who's been burned out on it and in some degrees yes it's become routine as jobs do but he he still manages to um to not not just retain a sense of you know the importance of what he's doing but also in some ways feel more alive be almost sort of too sensitive to what's happening you know at at points in the story and so and yet you know not so sensitive that sends him over the edge like other characters I, i think to me, striking that balance between, um, you know, someone who's navigating, you know, sort of navigating his environment while keeping a sense of humor about it was what I was looking for. Talk about using that uh, science fiction trope to externalize all these emotions, because there's some great lines in here. At one point, he will attend funerals for people, and he might see somebody who he's working with also attending the same funeral. And at one point in the in the story, he says, he sees somebody. He says, "I'm not sure who's smiling, Raj or the person he is hiding inside of." Right. And I thought that was such an interesting, just a really great uh, vision. Thanks. Yeah, I, I it's it's it, it's phrases like that that are the most fun to stumble on when when you have. You have the sort of initial conceit, mm-hmm. but it, it feels it can feel empty until you kind of find the 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 ways to sort of you know the little berries that are in that <laughs> that are in there you know um, they, you sort of pluck them out of this vague idea bush. <laughs> there's there's <laughs> hidden word berries, the phrase berries, and that was one of them that I thought that crystallizes that that's the that's the 
juicy berry that I was looking for in, in the idea. There, you also do a good job of you know uh, riffing on humor, and you have one of your riffs is at one point that the, the character says, "There's no upper bound on weird," mm-hmm. <laughs> which is that, and that's the first t- thing he says. But then he goes on to to find a number of things upon which there is no upper bound, and I thought that was a nice uh, humor riff. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, again, me trying to be a mathematician. <laughs> <laughs> um. Also, too, though I think that, you know, inherent in this story is a a really powerful kind of emotional content, too, because we feel just this aching yearning for this guy that he feels. And so I talk about when you do. And this is present, I think, in almost every story in this book. Uh, No matter where we go, there's a kind of deep at the heart of this. There's a real aching and kind of yearning and a loneliness. And this, of course, standard loneliness package gets straight to the to the heart of that. So talk a little bit about um, do you find that that kind of content or do you just does that just come out of the language or does that uh, or does the language come out to create that? Mm. Um, probably more the the latter. Yeah, I think someone, a friend of mine, pointed out to me recently that um, uh, he's read all three of my books. My brother has also pointed this out, and he's read all three and uh, pointed out that it, the if there's one thing that runs through everything, it, it seems to be this kind of this sense of yearning. It's somebody often a sort of lonely male character is yearning for something that he can't have and probably never will have to some extent. So I think I think in some ways it's it's variations on that theme so far. The the second story uh, is a is really a fun story called First Person Shooter and this gets to this kind of a video game vision of the world that that we're all developing our they tell us we're developing. Right. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid it to be honest. <laughs> right. But it's a lot of fun. You have two people in a in a 24-hour uh, warehouse store. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, as science fiction, one of the things that's interesting about your stuff is you've said it and write it in such a way that it doesn't feel at all science fictional, even though we know by virtue of the fact that your characters are you know, outsourcing their emotions or they're, they're in this giant store and there are zombies around. Um, we know that it's not the world we live in, but it feels a lot like the world we mm-hmm. live in. Mm-hmm. And, and that is that a deliberate attempt on your part or is that something that just happens in the again in the prose? I think it's a deliberate it's a deliberate attempt. Um, I, I some, sometimes I think of it as not wanting to ask more than I should of the reader. And I'm, I'm so if I'm going to I think I, I, I try to. F- Sometimes I try to make the the voice and the character be as, I mean, as if they could be in a story that took place literally just in current, you know, present day America in a Walmart, for instance, instead of in the science fictional version of it. And um, and so I, I think of that as kind of like the grounding so that the premise can be weird. And, and so we, you have a kind of um, maximum quantity of uh strangeness within any, any one story and i don't want to exceed that amount 
<laughs> I, well, there, that goes to your uh, mathematical approach to fiction. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you get up to the 100% and you have to ratchet back somewhere else. Yeah, i got to cut something somewhere else, right? <laughs> um, uh, one of the things that's interesting, too, is this idea that we can get used to anything. And I think that this also, you know, this idea of boiling a frog mm-hmm. is present in, in mm-hmm. all of your stories. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to talk about that, how how that kind of your sense of that idea of, you know, you just put the frog in the oven and in the in the pail of water and keep, turn up the heat until it's it's boiled. Yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. I, I admit I'd never really thought of that as something that kind of kind of runs through a lot of them. But it definitely is, is somebody in a ridiculous situation talking to the reader, you know, narrating the story as if this is the most ordinary thing in the world. And I, I think I owe I think I owe a lot of that to people I've read and been influenced by. But mm-hmm. I think it's also something that is something that interests me. I mean, for instance, like you, you know, we're just touching on, we are at the sort of at some kind of maybe it's in a broader sense a 20 or 30 year place but it feels like we're in the middle of some kind of big shift into us existing more virtually than physically that's now I feel like is a very interesting time to be a person who was born before that was really before technology could really make that possible and will possibly and hopefully live into a time where things will be very weird compared to when, you know, I was born, for instance. And so th- I think it's a really good time to look around and go, how weird is it going to get while I'm alive? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're right. I never thought about that because we are kind of slowly at this point. We're, we're all frogs boiling in a slowly <laughs> virtualized environment where, you know, at first, as you say, back, you know, 20 year, years ago when my kids were born, uh, there was not much of an internet, and, and any mail you mm-hmm. sent was, you know, something you wrote, and you paid your bills with checks. And now I do so much stuff by email. I have so much. My life really is virtual. But that's just like our first, you know, we haven't even begun to get the water's just getting warm. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and and these stories show it getting warmer and warmer. And for standard loneliness packages, it, it's just been cranked up just a little bit more. And uh, I, well, I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get out of the water before it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> now, it, it, troubleshooting is a really interesting story. And this is, I think, definitely an experiment and, mm-hmm. and, a, and a means for you to really interrogate essentially what life is using language and and you uh this is do you i have to ask you work and play a do are you a, a technical writer by chance i'm a, a lawyer for a technology company okay so well. of a sort yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> then, then uh, because it seems to me that one of the the biggest influx of prose and writing that we've seen over the past 30 or 40 years, I mean, more and more stuff that's being written is technical writing Mm -hmm. and instruction manuals and how-to and documents and legal documents Mm -hmm. and technical documents and law documents. I mean, in the early 20th century, maybe I don't think that was quite so true. There was more news and entertainment. But now the the, uh, propensity is for lots of this kind of technical writing, Mm -hmm. and you use technical writing to inquire interrogate life as a device Mm -hmm. and I thought that was talk about creating that story 
Yeah, and uh, so in that story, for instance, uh, there's a de- you have a handheld device which basically is a wish fulfillment device of sorts. It's supposed to give you what you want if you can input something precisely enough. Um, and um, but you have a maximum of 48 characters. And I I did start this story well before I knew what Twitter was. <laughs> and so um, I guess in that way I, I sort of I, I sort of called it. But I I, I uh, well no Twitter doesn't give you what you want. So no I didn't call it at all. But no this is this is this kind it of wishes it could. <laughs> if it in 140 characters and some of the, the Twitter guys are gonna wish that they could uh, make Twitter into that wish machine. <laughs> right exactly. Well yeah when it when it turns into that then it'll be a completely different app. But um, I, I, uh, I, it, it was, um, you know, and so, so in the story, it turns out that of course, like, well, in the story, it posits that technology is always like, like this technology, which is that it's perverse. It, it's not going to give you what, what you think it's going to give you. It's going to give you exactly what you asked for. Um, the problem is you can't ask for things. You can only ask for things as exactly as language will allow you to. And even beyond that, you can only even formulate thoughts as exactly as your mind will allow you to formulate them. So it's, it's going back again to upper, you know, upper bounds or limits on things. It's, it's asking how well do people, how well do you know what you want? And, and at any given moment, could you ever even explain what you wanted, even, you know, in the simplest of terms? Um, so it's, uh, it's about technology, I think, but it's also about, you know, our relationship with it and our relationship with language as well. It's interesting, too, that how highly charged, again, the emotional content in this is and, and the fun you have, too, with the instruction manual format, that that how you can turn something that looks that uh, by definition is dry and without content into something that is full of content mm-hmm. and, and both... Uh, beautiful and meaningful and uh full of interesting um concepts Mm -hmm. yeah no i mean you're you're right you know rick it's there's so much uh, if you weighed it by the pound the 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 percentage of prose being produced by the world especially probably in america versus you know in in sort of developed countries is is or, or let's put it another way if an alien civilization were to come to earth and randomly pick out a document the chances are they're picking out a legal document or some you know some sort of terms and conditions that that a corporation has slapped onto their product or um or a technical document probably i mean just by volume i I would guess maybe now with facebook that it but those aren't really documents but if they were to randomly pick a web page it might (laughs) it might be a facebook page i don't know but um so you know it's inevitable that that kind of maybe it's not inevitable but that that strikes me as you know important right that we're in a sea of this kind of language and and how does that kind of language slowly creep into you know the way we write to each other and even the way we think about things you know how um so much of life is you know kind of comes with a user's manual now um eventually that's going to sort of take over i think <laughs> uh well uh, i'm sure if they do ask somebody to write a user's manual for life i think uh you should get be at the front of the line <laughs> <laughs> that's scary <laughs> uh now that those stories come in 
in the uh, section of the uh, book labeled Sorry. Um, in the, the story to head off uh, the section uh, Please is really wonderful. It's, it's a very um, interesting look. It's called Hero Absorbs Major Damage, which is... <laughs> Uh, you have some great, do some great work with titles. Tell us a little bit about this uh, story set in uh, virtual reality. Right. So this is um, this is a, a a gang of or, or band of warriors um, led by a guy who slowly comes to realize that he's a hero, and he's he's the one who's expected to lead his group through a virtual environment. And um, th- you know, anyone who's played online role playing games, which I think is millions of people. Um, would probably be instantly familiar with this, but even people who aren't probably have some passing familiarity with the fact that there are these virtual worlds that people spend lots of time in. Um, even even if you're not sort of like a hardcore, you know, Warcraft player or something or Starcraft player, anyone who's played a social game on Facebook, which is probably hundreds of millions of people, um, that w- would sort of you know have some familiarity with this kind of thing. And and so this is people living in in a world you know in a virtual world but as the story goes on they come to understand the nature of their existence and and who might be in control and how little control they might actually have over things well what's interesting too is it's a a world where that's all story and it's a story that's about a world that's all story so mm-hmm. there's a kind of a Escher-esque feel to it as well in terms when you start thinking of it in terms of story and characters the characters are all characters of char- characters created by characters external to the story and the world is takes place in a world that's external to the story right yes <laughs> I, I in that sense i don't think you it requires any familiarity with the technology or the actual quote gaming experience it just may, requires an understanding of story yes yeah um you do a lot of interesting experiments in this book uh and for example um there's uh human for beginners and inventory human for beginners is a really interesting story talk about what what made you decide to like write a how do you come to the point in your life where you say i'm going to write a story called human for beginners <laughs> right so that story and then it's actually chapter five so mm-hmm. it, that probably tells you that at some point i ha- had an even more grandiose vision because that, that story is actually quite short and I, I i was thinking how fun it would be to write a fake encyclopedia you know for for use by aliens uh written by a pretty demented human so <laughs> this one do you have more parts of it <laughs> I don't, but now you're sort of rekindling my desire to write more parts of it. Oh, please, please. What a great book. I mean, you can human, you, get the dummies people to publish it. <laughs> yeah, right. So that, that story purports to be a kind of explanation of what various kinds of relatives really are, aunts, uncles, cousins. Um, again, trying to, you know, like the definition of sorry in the title story. Again, this is um, an effort to, you know, not not necessarily seriously try to define um uh what an aunt is uh, other than you know your your mother's sister but um uh but looking at something that hardly is ever looked at you know i I, to me yes of of course there's literature about you know parent-child relationships and i'm sure there are great novels and novellas and short stories about you know aunt nephew relationships for instance but I don't read a lot of, you know what I mean? That's just a sort of relation that is a very basic 
and could be very close relation that you could have and yet hardly ever examined you know what what is that what what is that relationship so I, you know i want to give aunts and uncles their due i think <laughs> well it's a lot of fun and you know that's an interesting uh, idea and again it's a very interesting approach that you take with your fiction um because it's uh you use a lot of the tropes of nonfiction in a scientific way to create these kind of science fiction because that feels like you know a very science fiction story even though there's not a wit of either really science or fiction in it it's mm. just a kind of a a thought-provoking piece and entertainingly funny and and, and interesting but I, I you have such an interesting uh, idea so uh, are you going to uh, I want to see this book okay <laughs> let's let's, uh, let's right. see the whole thing <laughs> okay uh, inventory is a, is a really interesting piece. It's it's again this is clearly an experiment, and we know this just by looking at it, mm-hmm. by virtue of all the white space. When you compose a piece like this, which has the devastating emotional content, um, do you do you compose it with all the white space? Do you uh, is this handwritten? Is this typed out? How do you do this? Um, it was it it uh took it, it had a lot of different iterations to it it did start out handwritten at one point um and, and it always had the white space in there it was always an idea of uh, a sheet of paper as a universe you know and and what can i fit in each of these um but a mostly empty universe because it's one voice one consciousness um who who wakes up every day in a different existence and is trying to find some kind of continuity to them. So the idea was to have the visual sort of, you know, um, the visual component to it and and, and see how lo- this lonely line of text would look and feel and how that might or might not add to the, the story itself. Well, it's such an interesting idea to use the placement of the text on the page as an aspect of the story you're trying to tell and the world you're trying to create. And this gets me to something that I really hadn't thought about in your fiction before, but I think um, not so far in the background is you're engaged in building some really interesting worlds. And that's, that's, you have a very, you have a totally unique approach to world building. Thanks. I mean, I take that as a high compliment because I, I, you know, a lot of the fiction I love reading, you know, is you could you could describe as world building. I actually moderated a panel at a at a the L.A. Times Festival of Books with the title of which was World Building, mm-hmm. and it was Lev Grossman, um, oh, Lev Grossman, John Scalzi, and um, Frank Bador, who wrote um, the uh, Looking Glass Wars. So. Mm-hmm. Each of them has built substantial worlds, and I, as a panel moderator, I, I remember thinking, "I'm not in these guys' league as a world builder. I write, I do these sort of miniature dioramas at best. I mean, I guess in my novel there was there was a bit of world building, but mm-hmm. nothing like the sort of extensive mythologies that these guys had created. But I think you're right. In 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 my own way, it's like I'm building sort of laboratory-sized worlds, and that's that's or room-sized worlds. Petri dishes. Petri dishes. It's it's like uh, the uh, old Outer Limits episode where they've got where they've got like a universe in a petri dish, and I think it was our Wolf three five nine. 
<laughs> and they're observing it and quite alarming as the civilization they've got in the Petri dish is growing out of control. Right. <laughs> Open is a very interesting story as well. This highlights, I think, your kind of surrealist and absurdist mode. Mm-hmm. Um, in in this story, a man and a woman wake up one morning to find a door in their in the middle of their apartment mm-hmm. through which they can enter uh, another world that's very much like ours. And they start spending more time, more and more time there, and they become different people there. So I'd like you to just talk about you know one thing that I think is in the back of all of your stories in this book too, and it kind of goes back and forth in the background is relationships between men and women mm-hmm. um, usually not uh, well handled by either party <laughs> right <laughs> uh, right Th- that is a um, theme um, so yeah th- right that story started with um, the idea of a well first you know not, before the door appears there's actually the word door mm-hmm. which appears in their apartment and um, you know I, I liked the idea the feeling there was um, to have, uh, again, a kind of, you know, um, uh, we're looking, a feeling of knowing that we're in the rat maze, but also simultaneously feeling like we're looking down into it at the same time in the story and, and knowing that these these are st- story characters um, who, who if not, they're not, exp- if not expressly conscious explicitly conscious of their status have a kind of creeping awareness of it as a as a writer when you're creating these characters who are somewhat self-aware that they're in a story uh does that uh this isn't something you always do so could you talk just about um bringing up the uh, different kind of language and the different ways that you create characters because you have a very un- absolutely like my, everything else about your writing is like you have a very unique sense of how to create a character Thank, uh, I, in this for instance in open you know it's a relationship as you pointed out and I think mm-hmm. you're right in that the key to that one is or, or not the key but uh, w- what I was really interested in, in in that one was in how a couple how they will tell their relationship as a story and it's negotiated between them you know it's um it's a story with two narrators that's always ongoing can be revised by either one of them and not always they don't the couple will probably hardly ever have the exact same interests in where the story is going um even in a successful relationship i mean i say this as someone who's happily married for seven years it's it it feels like an ongoing thing where we are telling ourselves and each other this kind of story um and so i think one way to sort of you know that 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 was what i was interested in why you know it wasn't just sort of metafiction for the sake of it there it was how a marriage or a relationship can feel like a story and and i think that you know the the characters there you know i i probably um Especially in the, in that in that story, it's it's kind of a light sketching. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, line drawings. They're they're not. These are not <laughs> exquisitely sort of rendered, shaded. You know, they um, aren't John Cheever characters. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, they are not. <laughs> but but that's not wouldn't that wouldn't be right for this story. That wouldn't create the right feel. You need something that's that's a little more elemental because that's more I think what you're talking about. I th- I think so. Although I can that's that's a, that's you know that's a convenient excuse for me <laughs> from the limitations of my sort of um, you know uh, 
character rendering abilities. But but I think you're right in that if you're going to have this kind of, um, you know, flipping back and forth between levels or this kind of optical, you know, trick where you're you're looking at the thing and then it 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 turns out you're looking on a different level, then um, it's easier to see that if it's if it's drawn in cleaner lines without a lot of detail. Um, it would be neat to be able to do it so that it was like one of those magic eye things where it's so complicated and yet there's still, you know, this weird thing popping out at you and like do a whole Cheever story, but then have this kind of element on top of that. But I'm not capable of that at present time. Uh, I'm sure you are. We'll <laughs> just wait for your next uh, collection. To, right. <laughs> that, that one you could uh, send that one to the New Yorker first. <laughs> okay. Note to self gets to something I think that is in, that also bubbles in the background of your story and uh, so all your stories and comes up to an adult contemporary, which is our unceasing, unknowing, internal monologue, the the hamster wheel of doom <laughs> <laughs> that sometimes when you just wish you could shut your own damn self up. Yes. <laughs> Why don't you just sure. read the opening of that story? Because it's just so so uh, great. Note to self. Yeah. Dear alternate self, I read in the paper today about the quantum multiverse, and how there are billions of me out there. Did you know about this? Anyway, I have a proposition for you to consider. If you would be interested in more information about my idea, please write me back and I will explain in greater detail what I am thinking, anxiously awaiting your response. Me. You. Us? Dear self, I was just about to write you the same thing. Yours truly. You. <laughs> It's such a great hall of mirrors. Uh, when when you were writing this, uh, th- that particular piece, could you talk about establishing, you know, a dialogue with yourself? That's a that's a unique form of dialogue. <laughs> yeah, that that's uh, not not unconnected from from my previous book, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, where there are multiple versions of a self that can't really interact because they're in different universes. Mm -hmm. Um, It it just goes back to this idea that what if we're living in this quantum multiverse where there's at any given moment yourself and the universe itself is branching off into different possibilities, you know, and yet through some kind of complicated way that they, they can be, they can't interact, but they can have some kind of entanglement with each other. I was it was just a fun way to get into an idea of well, what if these selves could could talk to each other across universes? You know, what if you could write a letter where all of these selves were writing the same letter at the same time? What would that letter look like? Well, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. As is the following uh, story, Yeoman. <laughs> this is based on a classic story about Star Trek, the original show. In that the guys who went down. And more the red shirts on the away team were the ones who who never came back. Right. <laughs> right. Yet what you do, you you get to have a lot of fun with this, but also there's a lot of my pathos in this too. Uh, you know, some some really in- interesting thoughts about marriage, and I thought that was very uh, surprising and kept it from just being you know kind of a satire. And that's that story was actually published in Playboy magazine. And I was proud of the fact that wow, it was uh, awesome. It was, the, the heroine of a story published in Playboy was a pregnant woman, <laughs> um, and, and uh, so I mean maybe that's happened before. I don't know, but <laughs> um, but yeah, that was uh, it was 
in a way that's a workplace story right mm-hmm. i mean it's this guy has a terrible job he knows he's going to die at the end of the week he doesn't know how but he knows it's going to be ridiculous i mean to add insult to injury it's probably not even going to be you know something dignified like he died saving the rest of the away team it's going to be some bs kind of thing where it just is strange for the sake of an exciting episode and so he's he's bummed about that you know not to spoil the story but his wife does get involved and decides that things aren't going to be you know their lives aren't don't have to take this kind of path that that he thinks is predestined you also have um designer emotion 67 Mm-hmm. This is another uh, example of your exploring uh, corporate prose for uh, your own perverse purposes. <laughs> right. Talk, you know, I, and I love this uh, how you use corporate prose to examine essentially, you know, the meaning of life. You mm-hmm. you you look at depression and go from depression to the meaning of life, and that's an interesting connection, and it seems uh, logical to us. And it, that it, that also seems the fact that it seems logical is kind of scary. Right. Uh, I've been, you know, I was reading a review recently um, about, you know, there's there's been a couple of books in recent years, probably more than a couple, but a couple I'm aware of, about the pathologization of of what might in a different era been considered ordinary human, parts of ordinary human experience. For instance, extreme sadness, you know. <clears throat> I, you know, I don't, I want to be, I, I don't, I don't mean to imply that I necessarily think that there aren't, you know, uses for pharmaceutical products, but the idea, certainly there are, but, uh, or specifically, you know, drugs that help sort of people that are depressed or have, you know, anxiety disorders. But the idea there was to get inside of the mind of somebody who controls a corporation where what you make is essentially supposed to make everyone's life better in ways that kind of steamroller steamroller over any individual differences you know i mean they he talks about how de- there's you know they they started out you know in drugs for baldness and erectile dysfunction and they moved you know they made so much money in those they can move up to making diseases uh, making drugs that basically cure any kind of you know that basically fix any kind of state that you might have at any point in your life that's just sort of an interesting idea to me i think it is really complicated obviously but it does seem to me that the amount of drugs available now has got to be greater than than at any point in history and the range of things is only going to increase in what we can take to and sort of the conditions that are treatable by pills uh, there's have you read the futurological congress no by lem oh it, he he posits a future where he calls it a, it's a chemocracy and, and you can achieve any state you wish to by chemistry. And, of course, if you want to feel like Dante having just written The uh, the Inferno, you can take Dante. Right. right. <laughs> See, he was there 40 years ago, probably. He, yeah. So um, the Book of Categories is another one of these kind of uh, pieces that you write, which is intense and heartrending and highly experimental. This is like you attack a, a very emotional problem with the MS outline, uh, <laughs> default outline format. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> There's a, a great uh, essay by a writer named Ander Monson where he, it's, a, it's nonfiction, but he does, he uses, yeah, this kind of Harvard outline format to, to investigate um, 
his topic and um uh, i i basically stole that <laughs> to <laughs> to write a story um and um and but but i guess the, the if i did add anything it was to it, because the story is about a book which um the book of categories so it's it's an outline story about a book that is essentially about subdivision itself so it's a subdivided story about about subdivision <laughs> <laughs> but there's also too i think i as in all of your stories um one of the things i like though you you play with these kind of great um abstract experimental ideas there's never a there's not a story in here that doesn't like strike you at the heart of of at your heart of hearts and and this feeling of yearning that we talked about earlier and I love the way that you work that into this story because this is another one about you know relationships yeah right it's um it, at the at the core of it you know this sort of subdivision in this order we're trying to impose on the characters are trying to impose on the world and the book that the, the book is trying to create some kind of structure but ultimately what's trapped at the smallest unit can't be further subdivided which is this um you know not to spoil it but this kind of you know awful loss at the center of you know there's some kind of very primal source of loss and and pain at the center of the story that is covered up in all these layers of sort of categorization but but ultimately those don't touch what's what's a you know the, you know you can put as many grids on, as you want on on this pain but it's not going to get extinguished by by you know being sliced up into smaller pieces finally this brings us to adult contemporary which is another story uh, where you use language to query identity and uh this is has a very interesting science fiction concept this is uh, so talk a little bit about, you know, twigging to the concept of this story and then using it to uh, discuss the hamster wheel that uh, threatens to consume us when we can't go to sleep at night. Yeah. Yeah, this is in a way um, a kind of like, not, it, it's pulling from, it, this is like the thesis on, you know, a lot of the, if if a lot of the stories in the book are experiments, this story was trying to be the master's thesis, I guess, and, and pull together. <laughs> this is me defending my dissertation and mm-hmm. uh, in this using our science analogy here. So, right, we have a world where corporations, you know, in Designer Motion 67, corporations can give us a pill for any emotion. They can design our mental states for us, or, or we can design our own mental states and ask them, and they will deliver us what we want. And in adult contemporary, it's it's actually even a step further. They can kind of have themed lifestyles you you can purchase something that is um from if not cradle to grave from the moment of purchase to your death you can you can live in a kind of you know themed themed environment and and not have to worry about things going off track because it's been thought out for you already well this is uh, again another examination of the importance of story in our life I and mean, if what a nice idea. We don't have to just wait for our story to arrive. We can kind of buy it in, in, in whole cloth and say, okay, there it is. Right. No no more worrying about that story, right. which, of course, proves to be problematic, as, right. as these things are. Um, you know, it's so interesting, I think, too, the way here's another story that 
deals as a science fiction writer I think you do some you're quite superb at creating very sophisticated concepts and very sophisticated worlds that don't feel that way that feel like I mean this feels when we read this it kind of feels like reading like somebody trying to buy a stereo <laughs> right, right. Or, or a car right. and yet you have all these kind of uh, you just uh, ratchet all that up to the, your with your science fictional notch so I'd like you to talk about um, just a little bit about how the pros in this story and I guess the pros throughout the book which kind mm-hmm. of uh, I think that's one of your uniting forces in this book is no matter how variegated the material, and there's this is a very sophisticated book with lots of very different kinds of stories. We all know the instant we sit down to read a Charles Yu story that that's who's behind this one because of just the way I think you surgically slice and dice your language. Is there a lot of uh, revision that goes on there? Yeah, there, I mean, there's definitely revision, and it. I don't know if it... Hmm. I. I I, I would be probably the worst person to say whether or not it's like that from the beginning or it's revised to become that. Mm-hmm. Um, Presumably a bit of both. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, and, you know, it, it's tough to go back and read some of it sometimes because uh, style can often, you know, harden into mannerisms, I guess. We don't, mm-hmm. I, I, that's always the thing I'm fighting against is, is, you know, I don't want to have ticks. I'm sure I have them, and to some extent, they're not going to be. I can't remove remove all of the sort of, you know, things, the patterns, and and things that I like to go back to. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's the hard part, right? Drawing the line between what what's style and what's what's tick. What are what are just, you know, uh, habits. That, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, if there's one thing that is is conscious it's definitely in trying to keep the prose simple and straightforward because i think i'm trying to sell such a uh often so much there's so much machinery i need to <laughs> i need to sell you on <laughs> as a reader that I, I i've got to have a straightforward approach and i think that does tie to what you're saying which is a great point which is that it feels like this guy you know murray is buying a stereo he turns out he's buying he thinks he's buying a condo and he's buying a life, right? Mm-hmm. He's buying um, a packaged lifestyle, or, or I guess I think they call it an experiential product, right? So it's a narrative experiential product, and I think, I mean, I should know I wrote the book, but I, I, I think there's some analogy there to what really happens, right? I mean, I, I buy stuff, I, I recently acquired this from my wife, it's a hand-me-down, it's my iPhone. My old phone was not, it was a dumb phone. This is my first smartphone ever. And mm-hmm. I was always thinking I won't get sucked into buying things off this thing. And of course now I'm buying things. You know, I just recklessly <laughs> buying songs and, you know, albums, you know, books, everything, right? So it's so easy, right? It, it, the, everything, I mean, the line in the transaction between consumer and producer has gotten so that it's pushed so that 99% of the work is done on the producer side of the line there's just all we have to do is like flick our finger a couple of times and push a button not even a button push the screen where there's a fake button right i mean <laughs> it's, it, it, it's as if all we have to do is want it <laughs> exactly which is this a- this is the device from troubleshooting that's all right <laughs> uh so what are you working on now I'm working on a novel. Oh, good. Yeah. So. Uh, and can you tell us anything about it, or do you? What do you know about it? 
that you are willing to talk about. Um, uh, no, I'm willing to talk about what I know about it, which is um, I, th- that's the problem. I think if I knew, I don't know what I know about it yet. I think I know <laughs> <laughs> um, that it is. It's a well, okay. It's about it's about a father and a daughter, and um, a, a father and a daughter who are um, sort of in a world in which they are it's not I I think it's not an explicitly science fictional world Mm -hmm. but there is an element of magic in the world and um, it's really about sort of metaphor and how important that is to uh, the understanding how we navigate things through metaphor Uh, I've been just really interested in reading um, about that recently and that's um, something that sort of obsesses me as my daughter is four, about to be five. My son is three. And, you know, they are constantly asking for stories. They're constantly um, asking, you know, questions that would never occur to me um, to ask, you know, anymore. And um, I think that sort of dialogue with both of my kids all the time has has really interested me in how, in trying to wipe off some of the sort of dust on my own, you know, spectacles and like remember what it was like to see the world the way they're seeing it, which is really without a bunch of assumptions and without a bunch of, you know, blind spots. I mean, they can see things that I can't see. They ask about them and then it reminds me that that thing is there. And and then the way they think about things is so, even when I use a simple, you know, sort of metaphor about something that they they don't understand it so they have to ask what that means and and then i see that building into their their world view and that frightens me because i'm thinking oh crap i'm i'm making this you know i'm helping to build the machinery of how they're going to think uh, i hope i hope it's not that i hope really it's not that i hope they're going to be <laughs> they i i hope i'm grossly overestimating my influence on the way they think i i probably am but but to the extent i have some influence on them it 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 just feels like a really big responsibility so all of that is to say it's, you know, it's, it, I think it's about, um, the story is, is about a father and a daughter who um, are trying to navigate uh, what is essentially a, a, a sort of metaphorical world. What an interesting idea. Now, when you were talking, it struck me that the entire fantasy genre, and in fact, essentially all fiction, is essentially, it's all about metaphor and simile, and, and that's... That's where essentially the idea of story itself comes from. It's, it's a metaphor. Well, it's like this. It's not this, but it's like this. Y- yes. <laughs> <laughs> and once you say it's like this, all of a sudden you shift it away from whatever the nebulous thing out there that they were seeing to this thing that's right in front of you, which may be easier for you to understand, but what they're seeing it might be far more interesting. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, we'll look forward to that one, Charles. <laughs> Thanks. So will I. If, uh, <laughs> hope it happens. I've been speaking with Charles Yu. His new short story collection is Sorry, Please, Thank You. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.